cue sappy music. Hey there, Fighting for the Faith podcast listener. Just want to remind you at the top of the program here that Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know, no, the music isn't working. Kill the music. Yeah, sorry. I see other guys use sappy music. I, uh, bad idea. Remind me to talk to you after the program. Anyway, just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions to keep bringing this program to you. If you don't support us financially already, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons. Fill it all out. You know what to do. Or if you would like to do the traditional thing, you can make your check payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, now you can play your music. Yeah. Enjoy listening to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Tuesday, May 1st, 2012. Mayday, mayday! (laughs) Yeah, it's bad humor. Boy, this is going to be a full program today. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy things being said out there. We do the comparative work. It's politically incorrect. We know that. And it's not because we're being unloving, because the unloving thing to do would actually be to say nothing. Um, We must challenge, confront, question those people who are teaching contrary to the Word of God. Why? Because people's souls are at stake. So this is actually what it means to love your neighbor theologically, if you would, doctrinally, if you would. We don't love and serve our neighbors by teaching them false doctrine. In fact, that's a way of hating our neighbor and actually hurting them badly. So Christians are not called to hurt their neighbors by teaching them false doctrine, but instead are to love their neighbor by teaching them the truth. By making every thought, bringing every thought captive, making it obedient to Christ. That's the idea. You don't get to believe whatever you want regarding God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, or anything like that. Christianity is not a come make your own, craft your own uh, religion and call it Christianity type of thing. We we proclaim the faith once for all delivered to the saints with the understanding that really the core message, the, the core message is about Jesus Christ, the one true God in human flesh, come to earth, crucified for our sins and raised again on the third day bodily from the grave for our justification. And if we're not calling people to repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name and rightly preaching the biblical Jesus, we're actually hurting ourselves, hurting our neighbor, and causing all kinds of harm in the church. And so that's the idea. Now, people would accuse you of being a Pharisee, would accuse you of being unloving, but it's it's really the opposite. The Bible makes it clear that it is 
the loving thing to do to rebuke those who teach falsely. It's to, That's the way you protect the church. The, a shepherd of the under-shepherd, the great shepherd, Jesus Christ, is called to feed and protect Christ's sheep by giving them sound doctrine, the word correctly understood, rightly handled, rightly divided, that kind of stuff. So this program, there's you got to understand, the times we live in, people, uh, especially here in the United States, I don't know if it's as bad in other parts of the world. I'm beginning to come to the conclusion it's getting as bad or if not as bad in places like uh, Great Britain, New Zealand, uh, Australia, but I can't speak for all of the planet. I just noticed that in the in the English speaking Western world, there's a problem, and that is is that people basically come to the Bible with their own ideas, and uh, their their minds never are brought into submission to what God's word says. As a result of it, there's some really bad teaching going on, and in the day and age that we live, uh, the world. Uh, rewards false teachers, those people who teach them what their itching ears want to hear. The world rewards those pastors by giving them mega churches, a lot of money, a lot of influence, and things like that. And those those things are pointed to as if that's the indicator as to whether or not God is behind what they're doing. That's not the indicator. The indicator as to whether or not God is really part of what a person's ministry is all about is whether or not they're proclaiming Christ whether or not they're rightly handling God's word, whether or not they're teaching sound doctrine. If they're teaching a false gospel, a false Jesus, uh, you know, a, a false doctrine, all that stuff, it doesn't matter how successful by the world standard a particular church or pastor is, they're not successful by the standards laid out in Scripture. And uh, in, in well, in those cases, they're hurting themselves and others. So we do here on a daily basis an exercise basis that says stop we're going to stop we're going to pause we're going to put the you know, we're going to pause that right there and we're going to take that statement that that pastor made and compare it to what god's word says in context to see if what that pastor is saying is true and if it's true it's really going to point us to christ and that's the thing about false doctrine it always seems to point us away from jesus puts our focus back on ourselves rather than on what christ has done and, or, or worse, puts it on a false Jesus, a construct, an idolatrous construct of uh, somebody's imagination rather than what's revealed in Scripture. So, anyway, yesterday I uh, I had to uh, do a light edition of Fighting for the Faith. Today we got a full docket of stuff that we're going to be covering. In fact, I'm you know, kind of looking at the, uh, the schedule here going, yeah, I don't know how I'm going to get all of this, but we'll see. Um, we So kind of walking through what our business for the day here is at Fighting for the Faith, I need to announce the winner. We have a clear, unambiguous, runaway winner for this year's uh, worst Easter sermon of 2012 contest. We're going to be uh, revealing the winner here shortly. Um, I've got a couple of emails I need to get to. I've got a Patricia King update. I've got an update, uh, a video that uh, Scott Kingsolver uh, put on my uh, Facebook wall. Um, a guy by the name of Adam Hamilton uh, of the United Methodist Church making some pretty crazy claims regarding evangelism. And uh, I may or may not get to that one today. I've got an Albert Muller piece that I need to get to. And the name of his latest op-ed piece is entitled, Is the Megachurch the New Liberalism? And he's reacting to uh, something that Andy Stanley recently did uh, that needs to be made. I'm going to have to actually play the audio from Andy Stanley, uh, a recent sermon that he preached. And the... <laughs> question that immediately comes up is, 
What does Andy Stanley believe, teach, and confess regarding the sin of homosexuality? Um, it's it, clearly there's a problem here that uh, uh, Dr. Moeller is addressing. So we got that, and uh, and then in hour number two, we're going to continue with our experiencing God, our Blackaby critique. So I mean, we got a ton of ground to cover today. So uh, you know, hunker in, uh, make yourself comfortable, fuzzy bunny slippers do actually enhance your listener uh, experience if you have the opportunity to listen to that. If you're in the uh, upper part of the Midwest like I am here uh, today, uh, we're having all kinds of thunderstorms rolling through. Just roll with it. I mean, we might get a thunderstorm during the program today. So if that happens and you hear the lightning in the background, uh, understand that uh, we've got to get through the program. So I'll do my best to ignore it and hopefully it won't knock the power out. (laughs) That's happened to me before, by the way. Uh, there have been t- there have been a couple of times since moving to the Midwest uh, to uh, Central Indiana, where I've been recording the program and a, a thunderstorm rolls through in late spring and has knocked the power out. And you know, it's like I'm sitting here going, "Oh, please come back, come back, come back." Anyway, so uh, with that, we're going to dive into the program proper. Our first segment is this. In another world-class, heretical, con- uh, competitive event here at Fighting for the Faith, we're here to announce the winner of this year's Worst Easter Sermon of 2012. Five heretical, no, six, six heretical uh, contestants walked onto the heresy playing field, but only one will be crowned the winner this year of the one who brought us the worst Easter sermon of 2012. It makes me wonder, I mean, is this kind of fanfare really appropriate for what it is that we're going to uh, be announcing here? There's our uh, Harold Trumpet fanfare to announce uh, this year's winner of the worst Easter sermon of 2012. And like I said, we had six competitors this year, and uh, I <laughs> I have never picked the winner yet. I've got to tell you, every time I've I thought I know who's going to win, I have been like flat out wrong. So let me remind you here of uh, the contestants. In fact, what I'll do is I'll do this in reverse order. It, it, that's probably the best way of doing it. We'll do it in reverse order. We will announce, you know, from sixth place all the way up to first place who, you know, how how the people ranked. So the first competitor this year was uh, Chris Songson, and he comes in sixth place this year with only 2% of the votes. Um, so, uh, so Chris, uh, thank you for participating. We hope that in the future uh, we will never have to uh, feature you here at uh, Fighting for the Faith's Worst Easter Sermon of the Year contest. Um, I think he's been featured before, though. Uh, so anyway, he, only 2% of the votes go to Chris Songson. Now, coming in fifth with 3% of the vote 
uh, is our Lawrence Neeson, uh, the gentleman who preached the Titanic sermon. So uh, there you go. There's uh, so number number five or fifth in fifth place is Lawrence Neeson. In sixth, uh, not sixth place, in fourth place would be Troy Gramling and his uh, Pitology sermon with 17% of the vote. And then Mike Ireland and uh, his, um, his sermon came in with 18% of the vote, so he's in uh, third place. Second place is uh, Scott Slocum and uh, his sermon, which was very, you know, kind of demeaning. Uh, you know, he took uh, the Easter uh, sermon time to uh, bash traditional church and uh, basically give an apologetic for being purpose driven. But uh, this year, clear winner uh, with 32 percent of the overall vote goes to Shane Hips of Mars Hill Bible Church up there in Grand Rapids, Michigan. He's the uh, gentleman who's now the head teaching pastor now that Rob Bell has left. And by the way, he's this Wednesday night, uh, Shane Hips is going to be uh, teaching at Willow Creek. So, I mean, you know, talk about spreading heresy. So what we're going to be doing here, um, to, just to let you all know, you know what, how do we uh, honor somebody who's won uh, the uh, worst Easter sermon of the year contest? Well, in the years past, we've sent out a copy of uh, Mike Horton's book, the uh, a Christless Christianity. So what we're going to do with uh, Shane Hips is we're going to send him a copy of Mike Horton's book, uh, Christless Christianity. And then also, you, you hear that? That's... That's pirate silver, and I'm going to actually send him 30 pieces of uh, silver to, uh, you know, to commemorate and kind of help make the point that uh, he truly betrayed Jesus in that Easter sermon. So there you go. That's uh, the, the the announcement there. Shane Hepp's, uh winning clear winner this year for um, the worst Easter sermon of 2012. Um, all right, moving along. All right, got a couple of emails I want to get to today. Talking about Shane Hips, I got a Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley email where he addresses the major error in Shane Hips' Easter sermon. Uh, Pastor Charmley writes, he says, Dear Chris, it is extremely interesting that Shane Hips and Joel Osteen, despite the great difference in their theology, finally come down on the same point. Now, <laughs> I got to just pause right there for a second. There are not a lot of people on the planet who would sit there and go, yeah, you know, Shane Hips is just like Joel Osteen. In fact, I'm sure Shane Hips would be appalled to hear this. But anyway, it, I, he makes a good point. And uh, so the thing that they both finally come down to the same point on is that the resurrection is a metaphor. From the Unitarian to the prosperity preacher, if you leave out the true meaning of the resurrection, you are left with a metaphor, and a metaphor largely controlled by the imagination of the speaker. Shane Hips's deconstruction and mind games and on the same banal note as Joel Osteen. Ironic as Hips would probably regard Osteen as part of the, what is wrong with evangelicalism. This is absolutely true. I think he would. Now, it is true that evangelicalism has largely reduced eschatology, at least on a popular level, to going to heaven when you die, and therefore has downplayed the resurrection of the believer. The answer, however, is a return to Christ and not an abandoning of Scripture. Pastor Charmley, I couldn't agree more. 
Uh, you're you're spot on as usual. Good good points. Okay, next one. I got an email here from a gal named Janine, and uh, I do not know where she's from, so I cannot tell you where she's from. But um. Janine writes, she says, hey, Chris, thank you for your ministry. I check in often and agree with you and have learned from you. We are in a church situation where a lot of the folks have more of a charismatic bent. In the women's ministry, things were said that were not biblical. In, in heaven, are, for, here's an example. In heaven, there are rooms with body parts. If you have enough faith, you can grab whatever you want and heal somebody. Wow. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> I haven't heard that one before. So, so those of you out there, you know, if you're, um, you know, you got something broken on you, you know, you need a spare foot, you know, and spare knee, maybe a spare hip. Don't worry, just by faith, reach into heaven and grab a body part. Wow. Um, so, uh, Janine says, I pulled the person aside and asked where they found that in Scripture, and they told me that there is a revelation that that there is revelation outside of the Bible. Blah 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 blah. You've heard it all yourself. So yeah. So you confronted them basically, said back that up with Scripture. They said, Nah, we got this via revelation outside of Scripture. Wow. So well, there's plenty of this going around, and I'm worn out trying to talk with these people. So my husband and I went to our pastor. He says he doesn't agree with this stuff but that these people need to be discipled. I told them that they refuse to sit down with me and look at Scripture and continue to spew their false teaching. The pastor doesn't call it false teaching, but people in need of discipleship. And that may be uh, that we aren't understanding what they are really saying because they are confused. So my question, I think if they refuse to sit down, then I can call them dangerous and false. I think our pastor disagrees. How would you explain the difference between someone needing discipling and a false teacher wolf in sheep's clothing? I think the pastor found it offensive that we called them false teachers. Could use some help discerning here. Thanks. Um, Janine, let me just put it to you plain and simple. The pastor is responsible for what's going on there. Uh, the buck stops with the pastor, and the fact that this is going on shows that there's something wrong there with the pastor. Now, he may be just trying to be polite and basically say, let me handle this by saying uh, these are folks who need discipling. Truly, they do need to be discipled. These are folks in need of sound biblical discipleship. Um, but that's... Um, kind of, you know, um, the, the obvious point. Um, what they need to be disciplined is what needs to happen here. They need to be called to the carpet. See, you've done the right thing here. You, you've got, you went to those people and you said, listen, you're teaching falsely. They said, no, we got special revelation from God. You just don't understand. So what'd you do? You went to the pastor. The pastor basically then, you know, he, I think he's politely trying to say, let me handle it. But the reality uh, is, is that there may be something seriously really off here. And uh, if the pastor doesn't discipline these folks and basically forbid them from teaching this heresy, this stuff that they're teaching, and doesn't address it publicly, since these are pub- this was publicly taught, um, then you have a you have a bigger um, issue that you're going to need to take care of, and that's going to be answering the question whether or not this is really a church that you should be staying in. Uh, if the pastor will not do his job and is allowing this stuff to happen um, either tacitly or through obfuscation or uh, you know other means, uh, then you can't stay because, um, the, yeah, this the, a pastor should not be allowing, number one, these folks to be teaching this, number two, for them to be believing it. And number three, um, when brought up, he should immediately spring into action to put this down. And if he doesn't do so, 
uh, well, then you've got some big, big problems. And what's at the heart of the matter is you said that the church itself is of a more charismatic bent. Well, my question would be immediately is is that if he really believes that we can be receiving you know special revelation from God um, directly without his word, um, then by what authority is he going to be able to tell these folks that what they're saying is contrary to Scripture. So you you understand what I'm saying? Because, you know, that's the problem. When you open up the door to special revelation from God, um, you you open the door to other kinds of things, and you literally cut yourself off from the authority that you need. That'd be a clear teaching of God's Word to put this stuff down. Because when you confront folks with this stuff, and basically say, you have the burden of proof to show that what you're teaching is biblical. And they basically say, oh, we got it from special revelation. There's a big problem there. Big, big problem. So, yeah, I, again, I'll be praying for you, but you may have a bigger decision to make um, sooner rather than later. Moving along. Talk about special revelation. Um <clears throat> All right, so we got a Patricia King gang update here, and uh, here's Patricia King in her recent video entitled Create Your World. Now, pay close attention to the technique that she uses. She would basically say what she's teaching is absolutely biblical. Well, <laughs> you're going, really? Okay. Um, and the way she would do it is she's, you know, she, what she's going to do is she's going to read a passage She's going to make it allegorical and metaphorical, and somehow it so now applies to us uh, via this allegorization and metaphoricalization. Is that even a word? Anyway, you'll get what I'm talking about here. Here's Patricia King on creating your own world. Hi there. I'm so excited about the topic I get to share on today. And it's about creating your world, and it's the title of my book. Creating My World. So apparently I'm a god. Book called Create Your World. And when God started... Yeah, I'm sure you've written a book. ...started downloading this revelation to me, I was so flipped out, excited about it. And it comes... Now, notice where it came from. She is basically saying God downloaded this information to her. She got this via direct revelation outside of God's word out of Genesis 1. And so if you want to start by looking there, you can look at Genesis 1.1 because it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The word God there is Elohim, which means divine ruler. Yeah, I, I don't think you've ever taken a Hebrew class. And I, I really don't think you should be talking about what the Hebrew there means. Elohim. Elohim is the plural for El, which is the word used for God. Or divine creator. And it says the earth was formless and void, which meant it had no structure. It was in a state of chaos and darkness. Kind of like you were teaching. This was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. And then God said, let there be light. And there was light. You know, maybe in your. Now, okay, so there we go. We read some of Genesis 1 talking about the creation of the heavens and the earth, how God created. Now that's all apparently a metaphor. 
Okay, this is a metaphor for the thing that you need to do. Listen to this. Your life right now, you're thinking, wow, I've got some places in my own life that are, you know, without form, they're void, they're without... Yeah, you see, so I need to hover like the spirit over the over the waters of the deep in my life. Substance, they're chaotic, they're confused, they're, they're, there's no shape to it, I don't know where I'm going, it's just kind of blah, even though I know the Lord is with me, he's hovering. So the creation event is just a metaphor for the chaos in your life. Over my life, but there's so much like, that's not even in any kind of form yet. Or maybe you've got areas of your life that have darkness or shadows on them. Yeah. And there's no light in them at all. Yeah. So notice everything's a, everything's a metaphor. Creation is a metaphor. Light and shadow are a metaphor. All of this is just, you know, metaphor for the chaos in your life. Well, what God did is he brought yeah. order into chaos, right. form into shapelessness. Yeah. And he brought light into darkness. Yes, he did. Not metaphorically or allegorically, but literally. And you know what? You can too. Really? Do you have a verse that says that? You're going to look long and hard in the Genesis account of creation where it's going to say, and see, just like God created at, you know, and put order into chaos, you can do it too. And that's exactly what that story is all about. Because you have the power to create. See, yeah, this is, <clears throat> hang on. Uh, yeah, yeah, that sounds a lot like the serpent. You will be like God. So you, you have the power to create. You are a God. In Genesis uh, 1, 27, it says God, Elohim, created man in his own image. In one of the versions, it says image and likeness. In the image of God, he created him male and female. Yeah, that doesn't mean that we're gods. He created them and then he blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky. Now what she's going to do is she's going to take the term image of God and she's going to eisegete her own definition into it, which basically means you now have the power to create order out of the chaos in your life. You can create your own world just like God did because you're made in the image of God. But see, here's the problem. We're, we're spreading the theological butter really thin there. And it is not based upon a, a, an accurate and appropriate understanding biblically of what it means to be made in the image of God. She's practically pouring into this concept that you yourself are a little deity and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So he gave him the power to rule in the earth. But it says that he made us in his image, in the image of Elohim, divine ruler and the one who creates. You have the power to create because you've been made in the image of God. Yet the text doesn't say that. You're drawing an inference from this text that isn't there. The God who created, order into chaos, light into darkness, Form. Yeah, keep in mind, he created ex nihilo, out of nothing. Into formlessness. You know, he is your God, and you've been made just like him. You have the power to create through Jesus Christ. I know that mankind fell, but Jesus bought it all back for us. And so Yeah, I know that mankind fell. We're just going to gloss all of that and talk. You know, we're not going to have an accurate discussion regarding man's fall into sin and its implications for us. But in Christ... We can create our world. I'm going to make a statement right now that some of you might not like, but I think it's it's very true. Is that the world that you now live in, your world, your life around you, you actually created, at least most. Really? So the world I live in, I created? 
Notice again, the implication is clear. You are a little God. So that you did through your choices, your actions, through, through your belief systems, through the words that you speak, um, through. Yeah. You created the world that you live in through the words that you speak. Your this is a, this is a version of the word faith heresy responses to other people's actions, you know, for the most part, you have created your world. Now, some of you might say, what? My life's a mess. I didn't create this mess. I was dealt a blow in life and people haven't been good to me. It's other people's fault that I have this life. But you know what? We have a will. We've been given choice so we can respond in faith and love and we can respond with God's ability to overcome or not, right? So even if the worst case scenarios come against us, we have the power to carve out a better future. We can create a better world. Hmm. Yeah, again, you are a God. No matter what you're facing right now, you can create a better world for you to live in and for others to live in. Man, this is not the biblical gospel. This is not Christian doctrine. This is not what Genesis 1 teaches. You know, most of you are familiar with how people create atmospheres. No, I'm not familiar with that at all. Um, because we have the power to create realms and atmospheres. We do, really. Do you have a Bible verse that says that? No, of course, she gets these downloads directly from God, so we don't need a Bible. For example, have you ever gone into a person's home where there was so much of the presence of God in it that you might have even said, wow, I can really feel the presence of God here. There's no, <laughs> I can't say that's happened. So much peace, there's so much love. Oh, I feel it. You might have said that to your host. Well, God didn't just decide one day to land in that house. You know, he didn't kind of roam over the neighborhood and say, wow, that's a nice roof. I think I'll download myself into that home. No, they created that atmosphere. Uh, oh, man. I, I don't know what God you believe in, Patricia. For God. They created the atmosphere of love. They created the atmosphere of peace in that home. Yeah. Through what they believe, through what they speak, through their actions, through the way that they treat each other. That's how they created that atmosphere. And God honored their faith. Really? Okay. Yeah. Again, do you have any clear Bible passages that teach any of this? He responded to their faith. When they believed that the presence of God could be there, they, that, that, that God came. I remember one time being in my, in my uh, study. I was praying, and uh, I had been soaking in God and worshiping and praying and reading my <laughs> word and having a great time in there for a few hours. And so God's a big bubble bath, and you can soak in him. I had no idea. I was getting, like, really filled with the spirit and went out to get myself a coffee, went out, made myself a coffee, you know, read a couple of emails, grabbed my coffee, went back into the room. When I got back into that room, I was blasted by the glory. No. So you got a glory blast. You, so you created that atmosphere. Okay. In that room was an atmosphere of the glory of God that hit me so strong. When I Yeah, right. Uh-huh. These are fine stories, Patricia, but you're not really teaching biblical Christianity and you're not teaching what the Bible teaches. These are all the dreams and delusions of your own mind and your own imagination. They do not have their origin in the will of God, the word of God, or in the mind of God. This is all your own craziness and this points us away from Christ. I walked through the door, out of the hall, into the room. 
Now, God didn't just decide that day, oh, let's see, what room shall I fill with my glory today in Patricia's home? Mm, Yeah, see, yeah, he was waiting for you to create the atmosphere for him to walk into. Hmm, I think I'll just show up in her office. No, I created that atmosphere. I would... Uh, unbelievable. Why does anybody take this person seriously? Listen, even determining to, although we can, we can determine to create atmospheres. We can intentionally create atmospheres. Yeah, and there isn't a single Bible verse that says any of this. But that day, all I did was go in to have my prayer time, and it just got really extended. And- yeah, yeah, extended bubble bath soaking time in God's pre- presence, apparently. Yeah. And uh, it, it just... You know, I wasn't intending on creating an atmosphere, but... I... Yeah, just like you weren't intending to teach heresy and to point people away from Christ rather than to him. The God you believe in, Patricia, is not the God of the Bible. You are deceiving yourself and the people who watch these videos, and you're sending yourself and you're sending them to hell. We are up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. We will be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Hey, do you want to feel holier than thou? Try Bible Thirst, holy drinks for people who need gratuitous amounts of piety. With all new flavors like prosperity, instant abundance. It's like adding your bank account to an electrical storm. Sound the alarm, you're going to be uncomfortably holy. What's that? You want mana? Well, how about super mana? Made with lightning. Real lightning. Preaching. You'll be good at it. It's a holy drink for men. Clergy. These aren't your pastor's puns. They are righteous puns. Piety puns. Sinner, saint, sinner, saint. Prayers, lights, cross lights, power lights, more lights than your body has room for. You'll be so holy, Mother Teresa will be like, slow down. And you're like, no. And roundhouse kick her in the face with your Bible pants. You have so much holiness, holiness. Ah. Just praying all the time. Power praying, power preaching, power praising, power fasting, power meditating, power laughing, power spawning. Chester, you have so much Chester. Just like Esau. Give prosperity to babies, they'll be holy too. Make your babies run abnormally fast. They'll be as fast as Elijah. People watch them running and think they're Elijah. They'll race as fast as Elijah. In a race with the actual Elijah. And it'll be a time they get deported back to Israel. Hey, go with the for sure thing. Don't gamble on your afterlife. Jesus. Try Bible thirst. The energy that will make you uh, holy. Uh. 
You spend some serious time staring at a digital screen, probably around eight hours a day. There's work, video games, surfing the web, and every other function of life on all our devices. Hey, we live in an age where everything is digital. It's just par for the course, right? But have you ever thought about the impact all that has on your eyes? All that screen time is going to affect your vision. Maybe now, maybe later, but it's gonna happen. We're talking everything from eye fatigue and headaches to eyes that are so dry and irritated, they could make even the techiest dude alive want to go analog. It's pretty hard to do the stuff you love if your eyes are feeling exhausted or burnt out. But it's not like less time in front of a screen is an option these days. So what do you do? It's like you need some crazy awesome invention that can help your eyes stay fresh and protect them so that you can get the most out of your digital consumption. Introducing Gunner Optics. Gunners are these super sweet computer glasses that make it easier and more comfortable to enjoy all your digital activities. There's seriously some NASA grade stuff going on here, but basically they have this uber smart lens technology that improves your visual experience, protects your vision, and helps prevent wear and tear on your eyes. Gunner's yellow lenses filter out harsh artificial light, which helps you see better, and they relax your eyes and stop them from straining constantly. Plus, they help combat all those other nasty side effects of staring at screens all day, like eye fatigue and dryness. Your eyes do a lot for you. Return the favor with Gunner's. For more information about Gunner's and to see a video with me wearing my pair of Gunner's, visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash Gunner's. That's G-U-N-N-A-R-S. Again, piratechristianradio.com forward slash Gunner's. And thank you for your support. Bum, 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 bum. We're back. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church, especially if your pastor is tolerating people who are getting direct revelations from God, Patricia King style. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions. In order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world, you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Now, before we move along here, I want to let you all know that next Thursday, Thursday, May 10th of this year, I'm going to be speaking at Harbor Shores Church in Cicero, Indiana. This is north of Noblesville in Indiana, near Morse Beach, near the Morse Reservoir, up there in you know the north, north, north part of central Indiana. Anyway, Harbor Shores Church, and I'm going to be delivering a, a well a lecture that I think is a very important lecture entitled "Resistance is Futile." You will be assimilated into the community. That's right. Resistance is futile. You will be assimilated into the community. Just so you know, uh, the doors open at 6 o'clock, and uh, I begin speaking at 6.30 next Thursday night, May 10th. 
and uh, we're you know I I've got 75 minutes to present this important lecture for you. I'm not going to tell you too much more about it. It's kind of the although let me put it this way. We're going to be talking about where this concept of the community comes from uh, that we're constantly hearing in the seeker-driven movement. I'm going to kind of lay this thing bare for you. Historically and philosophically, I'm going to be naming names and pointing you to where the real problems are. So again, my uh, lecture, Resistance is Feudal, You Will Be Assimilated into the Community. If you'd like to get directions to this uh event, you can find the website at worldviewbootcamp.org, worldviewbootcamp.org, and uh, click on the coordinates uh, you know, thing there, and you can get the, the address for Harbor Shores Church, and, uh, and I look forward to you know, basically seeing as many of you all are able to make it Thursday, May 10th, at the uh, Worldview Boot Camp there at Harbor Shores Church, and uh, again, the doors open at 6, and I begin lecturing at 6.30, so look forward to seeing you there. Okay, moving along. All right, from the AlbertMuller.com website. Headline reads, Is the megachurch the new liberalism? This is a long op-ed piece, and I will be putting in the appropriate Andy Stanley audio from the sermon that he references here so that you understand what's going wrong here. Uh, So... Hang in there. We got to we got to work through this. Uh, Dr. Moeller is on the on the job here. He writes the the emergence of the megachurch as a model of metropolitan ministry is one of the defining marks of evangelical Christianity in the United States. Megachurches, huge congregations that attract thousands of worshipers, arrived on the scene in the 1970s and quickly became engines of ministry development and energy. Over the last 40 years, the megachurch has made its presence known, often dominating the Christian landscape within the nation's metropolitan regions. The megachurch came into dominance at the same time that massive shopping malls became the landmarks of suburban consumer life. Sociologists can easily trace the rise of megachurches within the context of America's suburban explosion and the development of the technologies and transportation systems that made both the mall and the megachurch possible. On the international scene, huge congregations can be found in many African nations and in nations such as Brazil, South Korea, and Australia. In London, where the megachurch can trace its roots back to the 19th century to massive urban congregations such as Charles Spurgeon's Metropolitan Tabernacle, a few modern megachurches can be found. For the most part, however, the suburban evangelical megachurch is an American phenomenon. Theologically, most megachurches are conservative in orientation, at least in a general sense. In America, a large number of megachurches are associated with the charismatic movement and denominations such as the Assemblies of God. Many are independent, though often loosely associated with other churches. The largest number of megachurches within one denomination is found within the Southern Baptist Convention, the nation's largest non-Catholic Denomination. The emergence of the megachurch was noted by sociologists and church researchers attempting to understand the massive shifts that were taking place in the last decades of the 20th century. Researchers such as Dean M. Kelly of the National Council of Churches traced the decline of the liberal denominations that once constituted the old Protestant mainline. 
This decline was contrasted with remarkable growth among more conservative denominations and churches, a pattern traced in Kelly's 1973 landmark book, Why Conservative Churches Are Growing. Kelly argued that conservative churches were growing precisely because of their strict doctrine and moral teachings. The early megachurches were the leading edge of the growing of the growth among conservative churches, especially in metropolitan and suburban settings. The megachurches were not without their critics. Theologian David Wells leveled a massive critique of the doctrinal minimalism, methodological pragmatism, and managerial culture of many megachurches. Oz Guinness accused the megachurch movement of flirting with modernity to a degree that put the Christian identity of the massive congregations at risk. On the other hand, there is evidence that the megachurches have also helped to anchor conservative Christianity within the social cauldron of the United States in recent decades. The evangelistic energies of most megachurches cannot be separated from a deep commitment to conversionist theology and conservative doctrinal affirmations. Within the Southern Baptist Convention, megachurches played an essential role in what became known as the conservative resurgence, the movement to return the convention and its institutions to an affirmation of biblical inerrancy. The most intense years of this controversy 1979-1990, saw the convention elect an unbroken stream of conservative megachurch pastors as SBC president. In the main, the megachurch, uh, megachurches provide the platform leadership for the movement, even as the churches themselves became symbols of denominational aspiration. Sociologically, the megachurch uh, model faces real challenges in the present and even greater challenges in the future. The vast suburban belts that fueled megachurch growth in the last few decades are no longer the population engines they once were. Furthermore, cultural changes, demographic realities, and technological innovations have led to the development of megachurch modifications, such as churches with multiple locations and sermons by video transmission. From the beginning, the megachurches led in the embrace of new technologies, and those now include the full array of digital and social media. What about theology? This question requires a look at the massive shifts in worldview now evident within American culture. What about theology? Well, this question requires a look at the massive shifts in worldview now evident within American culture, trends foreseen by researchers such as James Davison Hunter of the University of Virginia and others can now be seen in full flower. The larger culture has turned increasingly hostile to exclusivist truth claims such as the belief that faith in Christ is necessary for salvation. One megachurch pastor in Florida recently told me that the megachurches in his area were abandoning concern for biblical gender roles on a wholesale basis. As one pastor told him, you cannot grow a church and teach biblical complementarianism. Even greater pressure is now exerted by the sexual revolution in general, and more particularly the question of homosexuality. I should also note here, I'm going to uh, interrupt Dr. Muller for a second, that... Um, <clears throat> Rick Warren's wife, Kay, just recently preached the sermon at the Crystal Cathedral. Um, yeah, I don't think that falls into complementarianism. In fact, that's a flat out, um, well, that's a flat out disobedience to what God has commanded. Anyway, uh, he's talking about the homosexual issue here. He continues, the homosexuality question was preceded 
by the challenge of divorce, by, by and large, the story of evangelical Christianity in the United States since the advent of legal no-fault divorce has been near total capitulation. This is certainly true of the megachurches, but it is unfair to single them out in this failure. The reality is that the old first church and smaller congregational models were fully complicit, and for the same basic reason. Holding to strict biblical teachings on divorce is extremely costly. For the megachurches, the threat was being called judgmental, and they perceived danger of failing to reach the burgeoning number of divorced persons inhabiting metropolitan areas. For smaller churches, the issue was the same, though usually more intimate. Divorced persons were more likely to have family members and friends within the congregation who were reluctant to confront the issue openly. Church discipline disappeared, and personal autonomy reigned triumphant. Is the same pattern now threatening on the issue of homosexuality? No congregation will escape this question, but the megachurches are once again on the leading edge. The challenge is hauntingly similar to that posed by divorce. Some churches are openly considering how they can minister most faithfully, even as the public and private challenge of homosexuality and alternative sexual lifestyles has radically transformed the cultural landscape. Other churches, both large and small, are renegotiating their stance on the issue without drawing attention to the changes. A shot now reverberating around the evangelical world was fired by Atlanta megachurch pastor Andy Stanley in recent days. Preaching at North Point Community Church in a sermon series known as Christian, Stanley preached a message titled Where Gracie Met Truthy on April 15, 2012 with reference to John 1.14. Stanley described the challenge of affirming grace and truth in full measure he spoke of grace and truth as a tension, warning that if you resolve it, you give up something important. The message was insightful and winsome, and Andy Stanley is a master communicator. Early in the message, he spoke of homosexuals in attendance, mentioning that some had shared with him that they had come to North Point because they were tired of messages in gay-affirming churches that did nothing but affirm homosexuality. Then, in the most intense part of his message, Stanley told the congregation an account meant to illustrate his message. He told of a couple with a young daughter who divorced when the wife discovered that the husband was in a sexual relationship with another man. The woman then insisted that her former husband and his gay partner move to another congregation. They did move, but to another North Point location, where they volunteered together as part of a host team. The woman later told Andy Stanley that her former husband and his partner were now involved as volunteers in the other congregational location. The story took a strange turn when Stanley then explained that he had learned that the former husband's gay partner was still married. Stanley then explained that the partner was actually committing adultery and that the adultery was incompatible with his service on a host team. Now I'm going to pause right here. I'm going to pause uh, Dr. Muller's op-ed piece and play for you the section from Andy Stanley's sermon where he talks about this issue. And you're going to, when you hear it, it, it you, you're going to immediately identify where the real problem is. And Andy Stanley, got to say this, is one of the top generals. If, uh, if you think of the seeker-driven movement as an army, Andy Stanley is at least a one-star, maybe a two-star general in this army. He is no small fish. This guy is a pastor of pastors in the seeker-driven movement, and what he did on April 15th, 
as far as I'm concerned, is flat out biblically, doctrinally criminal. Here's Andy Stanley to explain the tension of, of this awkward situation. Here we go. Network of churches as large as ours, and we have, you know, again, a bunch of churches in Atlanta and around the country. We run into these situations all the time. I just want to tell you, to tell you one, one story. I was going to tell you three stories, but no time for three stories. One story that I, I just, here's, here's where we land. I, years ago, when we first started the church, I met a family in our children's ministry, a husband and wife and their elementary school age daughter. And uh, we got to be friends and meal together. I did a couple of funerals for um, parents and just, you know, not super best friends, but knew them, tracked with them, knew what was going on, see them at church. About five, five and a half years ago, she discovers that he's in a relationship with another guy. And it's devastating, of course. And it breaks her heart. And there's, you know, there's just the deceit and all the stuff that goes with, with those kinds of things. And of course, confusing for their daughter and embarrassing. And it's just, it's just, it's just a big mess. So she gets an attorney. Um, now, they were both involved in children's ministry at North Point. My question is, why wasn't this guy confronted with his sin and called to repentance and the forgiveness of sins? Because here's the deal. Scripture's clear. This is a sin. This is not. The Bible isn't unambiguous about this. The Bible is flat-out clear on this one. And the obligation of any pastor in the Christian church is to confront somebody with their sin, especially something as public as this, and call them to repentance and faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sin. Christ died for these sins. The goal in church discipline is that the person's brought to repentance and forgiveness. All of us are sinners, you and me alike. We don't do these people any good. We're not being loving Christians if we don't call them to repentance and faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of these sins. Um, you know, and, and to their credit, they asked the attorney to represent their daughter so that however this worked out, it would be best for her. So a single attorney worked this out and, and in six months, they're divorced. And there's all the shrapnel and all the wounds and all the betrayal and all the confusion and all the, you know, all that's all there. You've been through that. You've seen it. You have family members, whether, whatever kind of divorce it is. It's just all there. And it's as painful as it can possibly be. And then some months after the divorce was finalized, he shows up here at our North Point campus with his partner. And she's here. And it was either Easter or Christmas. I can't remember. It was a, it was, it was a big Sunday. And she is mad, three-syllable mad, okay? She is uh, uh, upset. She is, you know, she's like you would feel if it was you or your sister or your daughter. And it's like, and she got in his face and she said, look, this is my church. You know, you cause this problem. You go to any church you want to in Atlanta, but you can't come to, this is my church. I need a worship-free, I need a trauma-free zone. And so you go somewhere else. And basically she kicked him and his partner out of our church. And so they left. Well, as you know, we have lots Yeah, well, at least somebody would do it. Lots of churches in the city of Atlanta. And as it turned out, they decided to attend a different one of our churches. And it was the one that was closest to them. So they attended Buckhead Church. And as the story goes, the very, if I remember this right, the very first Sunday they showed up at Buckhead Church was our strategic service Sunday. And in Strategic Service Sunday, we spend the entire time recruiting people to volunteer. And I, you know, I cast a big vision and, you know, we're going to change the world. Come help us change the world. And so my friend's partner... Cast big vision, we're going to change the world. That ain't biblical. ...partner 
said, hey, I like this church. I think we should get involved. So on the first Sunday they're there, they go down and sign up to, to be in strategic service and join a host team, one of our guest services teams. Well, a few weeks go by and I'm checking on her. How's it going? And she said, that's good. You know, and we talked about the, you know, she kicked him out of the church and how's that going, you know? And, and she said, well, the, the good news, I guess, is that they're back in church. I said, oh, great, where? She said, they're going to Buckhead Church. She said, and then she kind of chuckled. And she said, not only that, they're serving. I said, really? She goes, yeah, they joined a host team. Now, an unrepentant public homosexual couple is serving at a church. Now watch, well, actually listen carefully to where the rub here is with Andy. What I knew, and I double-checked with her to make sure I was correct, was the last I, where we had left off was he, my friend's partner, and he's a friend now, but back then not so much, my friend's partner was still married. And so I said to her, I said, now, he's still married, right? And she said, yeah, the divorce is taking longer than, than they expected. It's kind of getting dragged out. So I called my buddy and said, okay, I know things have been awkward you know, between us, but look, uh, and, and I'm glad you're in church. That's a good thing. And I'm glad you're at one of our churches. You know, that's a good thing. But your partner, he's, he's still married. So see, this is just good old fashioned adultery. Like you're in a... No, this is not good old-fashioned adultery. This is old-fashioned homosexual perversion and sin. And you're up you're you're going to you're going to call the foul because he's still married technically to his wife. That's the foul. Why isn't the foul, hey, you two are p practicing perversion. What you are doing is is flat out sinful and you need to both repent and be forgiven at, for your sins. Yeah. Oh man. So, so they can't serve because, well, the one guy is technically still married. Sexual relationship with someone else's husband. Uh, you know, it was, you know, I've never said that before, but anyway, so I said, so you can't be on a guest services team. Okay. This is, you're just living in, you know, this is, this is clear. Okay. You can't do this. And he, you know, he, 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 so if he was not technically married, if he was officially divorced, then that would be okay with you. They could serve, right? He said, you know, I, I get this. He said, well, and, and it's funny now, it wasn't funny then. He said, well, he's married, but he's almost divorced, okay? We're all, he's almost divorced. They're at the very end. I'm like, you can't be almost divorced, okay? You're married or you're not. As long as he's married, you can't serve on a, host, on a guest services team. And so I kind of, you know. So you can't serve on a guest services team as long as he's technically married and you guys are shacking up together in a homosexual relationship. But we don't have a problem. You can still serve at our church if you're um, sexually active in a homosexual relationship. I kicked him off the team. He said, well, my partner, he's going to be really upset about this because he loved the church and he loved the fact that we were going to be able to connect. I said, well, you know what? I'll, I'll talk to you. If you guys want to come in, I'll, I'll talk to you about this. So they came in to see me. Now, a few weeks ago, during the Ann Rice message, I introduced some of you to a new word. The new word was disputatious, okay? Disputatious. So when they came to see me, the three of us had a disputatious conversation. It was really, really awkward and bad. And to, to our, you know, to my friend's partner's defense, it's because they showed up at Buckhead Church and they never saw me down there except on a screen. 
And so he said, how can you kick me off out of a church? You're not even the pastor there. I'm like, well, you're right. So I did what every great leader does. I said, let me give you the name and number of the pastor at Buckhead Church and you can call him and talk to him about this. All of our churches have different pastors. And so I gave him Jeff Henderson's name and I called Jeff and said, someone's gonna call you. It might be (laughs) disputatious. And so to their credit, to their credit, because who's got time for this? They talked to Jeff and Jeff said, as long, you know, you're married, this is just adultery. You can't serve on a guest services team. And so understand. No, it's not just adultery. It's flat out homosexual perversion. They are unrepentant practicing homosexuals and you are okay with them serving on as volunteers at your church. And as long as they're not committing adultery, they're technically not married to a, a, a female. Understandably, they um, left the church. And you know what, if I were them and saw the world the way they saw it at the time, I would leave too. Who wants to go to a church that says, oh, we want you to come help us. Oh, you can't help us. So they left the church. And that was the end of that. I, I, I would see. Hello, uh, church discipline of, for unrepentant sin actually comes into play here, don't you think? This gentleman, every once in a while, he did contract work uh, for a company we worked with, but it was awkward, awkward, awkward. So from time to time, I would check in with his ex-wife, you know, how's it going? How, you know, how are things going? And I noticed something interesting as time went by, and this is over the course of about three years. As time went by, she began to significantly soften toward her ex-husband and his partner. And next thing I knew, they were, she said, hey, we're, I'm cooking for everybody for Easter. And I'm like, who's everybody? <laughs> well, my daughter, my ex-husband, his partner. Hey, I'm having everybody over for, you know, a Christmas thing or Mother's Day thing. I'm like, who's everybody? My daughter, my ex-husband, his partner. And then eventually, you know, she began to date a guy named Doug, who's a great guy. And, and so all of a sudden there's another guy in the scene. Who, who, who are you? You know, who's coming over? Well, you know, my boyfriend, my daughter, my ex-husband <laughs> and his partner. I'm like, wow, that's... That's quite remarkable. Then another interesting thing happened. I was talking to her one afternoon and I was telling her about a special service we were having coming up. And she said, you know what? I think my ex-husband and his partner, of course she said their names, would enjoy that. I think I'm gonna invite them to church. Now this is the woman who kicked them out of our church. And so she said, I'm gonna invite them to something. They should go to Buckhead Church, just, just experience all that. I said, great. So the next Sunday, they showed up to the church that I had made them feel so awkward about attending. And I would have felt awkward too, but they came back anyway. And as I monitored and asked lots of questions, there was a constant moving together and her ex-husband's partner was very helpful as they dealt with something with a daughter as it related to an educational academic transition. And this went on and on and they moved closer and closer and closer together. And, And so one day I said, I said, look, this is so unusual because we deal with divorces and betrayal all the time. And it, you know, it just explodes all over the place and everybody's so wounded, you know, the end. I said, what has happened in you? And here's what she said. She said, you know, right after the divorce, I went to Oasis. Oasis is our, um, our uh, divorce recovery ministry for people who've been through divorce. She said, I went to, through Oasis and she said, there was a woman in our Oasis group that was so angry and so bitter and just spewed venom about her ex-husband. And she had been divorced for seven years. And she said she was just as angry and bitter as, as the day that you know, she discovered what her husband was up to. And she said, one night as I sat and listened to her you know, spew, I decided 
I am not going to be that woman. I am not going to be that woman. And so I decided the only way to avoid that would be to begin moving in the direction of my ex-husband and his partner. For my sake, for our daughter's sake, for his sake, for the family's sake. No mention of the cross and, the for- and forgiveness. And I, I was just astounded. And then this story ends with this past Christmas I got a call about a week before Christmas. We had lots of extra Christmas services and, you know, people cra- going crazy and everywhere. And, and they had been attending, the, his, her ex-wife and his partner had been attending Buck Ch- Buckhead Church ever since, you know, she invited him back to that service. And she said, we want to all come to Christmas service together. Would you save us some seats? Now, we don't allow saving of seats, but I know people, okay? <laughs> and so I said, of course. And so I asked George. George helps us here at our North Point campus save seats. And I, I said, George, I need, I need six seats. I said, well, I'll ask her first. I said, who's coming? She said, well, um, my boyfriend, his daughter, me, my daughter, my ex-husband, and his partner. I need six seats. And so, you know, halfway in our first Christmas carol, I'm sitting here, I'm standing here in my corner chair, singing, looking up at the screen. And I look across the aisle and about four people down are my six friends all singing Christmas carols together on the front row. And the only thing I could think was modern family. (laughs) Now that's not the first thing I thought. You just have to break the tension sometimes. And here's what I thought, literally. I thought, there it is. The marvelous glorious, messy, pain-filled. We'll get through this somehow. I'm not gonna be that woman. It's our daughter, microcosm of the church. So that's the microcosm of the church. Okay, Dr. Muller continues, the story took a strange turn when Stanley then explained that he had learned that the former husband's gay partner was still married. Stanley then explained that the partner was actually committing adultery and that the adultery was incompatible with his service on a host team. Stanley told the two men that they could not serve on the host team so long as the one man was still married. He later told the former wife's uh, told of the former wife's decision not to live in bitterness and of her initiative to bring the whole new family structure to a Christmas service. This included the woman, her daughter, her former husband, his gay partner, and his daughter. Stanley celebrated this new modern family as an expression of forgiveness. He concluded by telling of Christ's death for sinners, told the congregation that Jesus does not condemn them, even if they cannot or do not leave their life of sin. Declaring the death of Christ as atonement for sin is orthodox Christianity, and this declaration is essential to the gospel of Christ. The problem was that Stanley never mentioned faith or repentance, which are equally essential to the gospel. There is indeed no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but this defines those who have acted in repentance towards God and in faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. As for those who are not in Christ, they stand condemned already. See John chapter 3, verse 18. The most puzzling and shocking part of the message was the illustration and the account of the homosexual couple. However, the inescapable impression left by the account was that sin, the sin of concern was adultery, but not homosexuality. 
Stanley clearly and repeatedly stressed the sin of adultery, but then left the reality of the homosexual relationship between the two men unaddressed as sin. To the contrary, he seemed to normalize their relationship. They would be allowed to serve on the host team if both were divorced. The moral status of their relationship seemed to be questioned only in terms of adultery, with no moral judgment on their homosexuality. Was this intended as a salvo of sorts? The story was so well told and the message so well constructed that there can be little doubt of its meaning. Does this signal the normalization of homosexuality at North Point Community Church? This hardly seems possible, but it appeared to be the implication of the message. Given the, volunt uh, the volatility of this issue, ambiguity will be placed by clarity one way or the other, and likely sooner than later. We can only hope that Andy Stanley and the church will clarify and affirm the biblical declaration of the sinfulness of homosexual behavior, even as he preaches the forgiveness of sins in any form through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. His affirmation of grace and truth is full measure, in full measure is exactly right, but grace and truth are not exactly intention. The only tension is our finite ability to act in full faithfulness. The knowledge of our sin is uh, in truth a gift of grace and grace is only grace because of the word of what uh, of what God has done for us in Christ and yet even as we know this is true we also know that the christian church has often failed miserably in demonstrating grace to those who struggle with same sex attractions and those who were involved in homosexual behaviors we have treated them as a special class of sinners and we have assured ourselves of our moral superiority the gospel of Jesus Christ destroys that pretension and calls us to reach out to all sinners with the message of the gospel, declaring the forgiveness of sins in Christ and calling them to faith and repentance. The gospel is robbed of its power if any sinner or any sin is declared outside its saving power. But the gospel is also robbed of its power if sin, any sin, is minimized to any degree. What does Anley Stanley now believe about homosexuality in the church's witness? We must pray that he will clarify the issue so graphically raised in his message that, and that he will do so in a way uh, the unam that unambiguously affirms the Bible's clear teaching and that he will do so precisely because he loves sinners enough to tell them the truth, all the truth, about both our sin and God's provision in Christ. Biblical faithfulness simply does not allow for the normalization of homosexuality. We desperately want all persons to feel welcome and to hear the gospel and respond in faith and repentance to join with us in mutual obedience to Christ, but we cannot allow anyone, ourselves included, to come to Christ or to church on our own terms. The current cultural context creates barriers to the gospel even as it, even as it offers temptations. One of them, those temptations is to use the argument that our message has to change in order to reach people. This was the impetus of theological liberalism's origin. Liberals such as Harry Emerson Fosdick claimed that the Christian message would have to change or the church would lose all intellectual credibility in the modern world. Fosdick ended up denying the gospel and transforming the message of the cross into psychology. Norman Vincent Peale came along and made this transformation even more appealing to a mass audience. Fosdick and Peale have no shortage of modern heirs. Theological liberalism did not set out to destroy Christianity, but to save it from itself. 
Is the same temptation now evident? The Great Commission, we must remind ourselves, is not a command merely to reach people, but to make disciples. And disciples are only made when the church teaches that all that Christ has commanded, as the Great Commission makes clear. The megachurches are once again on the leading edge of these questions, but they are not alone. The urgency to reach people with the gospel can, if the church is not faithful and watchful, tempt us to subvert the gospel by redefining its terms. We are not honest if we do not admit that the current cultural context raises the cost of declaring the gospel on its own terms. Given their size and influence, the megachurches have an outsized responsibility. I am a member and a teaching pastor in a megachurch, and I am thankful for its faithfulness. I know of a host of faithful megachurch pastors who are prepared to pay whatever cost may come for the sake of the gospel. I know that my own denomination was regained for biblical fidelity under the leadership of brave megachurch pastors who used their pulpits to defend the truth. We desperately need these churches as both theological anchors and missiological laboratories. I would disagree with him here, but anyway, as far as missiological laboratories, I'm not interested in that. Anyway, the times now demand our most careful and biblical thinking, and they demand our clearest conviction matched to a missiological drive to reach the world with the gospel. We must embrace the truth with the humility of a sinner, saved only by grace, but we must embrace it fully. Once again, the mega churches are on the leading edge. We must pray that they will lead into faithfulness and not into a new liberalism. Dr. Mueller is absolutely correct. Unfortunately, based on what I see happening in the megachurches, I don't see them heading in the right direction. I see them fleeing the right direction. And like I said, Andy Stanley is at least a one-star, if not a two-star general in the army of seeker-driven megachurch leaders. This was not a mere oopsie or boo-boo on his part. This was definitely, a, well, he knew what he was doing. He put a lot of thought into this message, and what he said is blatantly contrary to what the Scriptures teach. He's capitulated the biblical message. He has cut corners and negotiated with the culture, and he needs to repent and do so publicly, clearly, and unambiguously, and call all homosexuals to repentance and faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, including the sin of homosexuality. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. We'll be right back. We're going to be working our way through uh, Blackaby again. So... Sharpen your pencil. Here we go. Sissioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. (laughs) Wipe out! 
The spring and summer travel seasons are just around the corner. And the last thing you want to do is pay more for your airfare, hotel, and rental car than you need to. That's why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to have Cheapo Air as one of our featured advertisers. Cheapo Air has over 18 million flight deals, low airfare guarantees, and 85,000 negotiated hotel rates around the globe. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, click on the web banner, and book your spring or summer travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That web address again is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Thank you for your support. You spend some serious time staring at a digital screen, probably around eight hours a day. There's work, video games, surfing the web, and every other function of life on all our devices. Hey, we live in an age where everything is digital. It's just par for the course, right? But have you ever thought about the impact all that has on your eyes? All that screen time is going to affect your vision. Maybe now, maybe later, but it's gonna happen. We're talking everything from eye fatigue and headaches to eyes that are so dry and irritated they could make even the techiest dude alive want to go analog. It's pretty hard to do the stuff you love if your eyes are feeling exhausted or burnt out. But it's not like less time in front of a screen is an option these days. So what do you do? It's like you need some crazy awesome invention that can help your eyes stay fresh and protect them so that you can get the most out of your digital consumption. Introducing Gunner Optics. Gunners are these super sweet computer glasses that make it easier and more comfortable to enjoy all your digital activities. There's seriously some NASA-grade stuff going on here, but basically, they have this uber-smart lens technology that improves your visual experience, protects your vision, and helps prevent wear and tear on your eyes. Gunner's yellow lenses filter out harsh artificial light, which helps you see better, and they relax your eyes and stop them from straining constantly. Plus, they help combat all those other nasty side effects of staring at screens all day, like eye fatigue and dryness. Your eyes do a lot for you. Return the favor with Gunner's. For more information about Gunners and to see a video with me wearing my pair of Gunners, visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash Gunners. That's G-U-N-N-A-R-S. Again, piratechristianradio.com forward slash Gunners. And thank you for your support. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. Well, we're already into it. Sermon review time, and it's not, not a normal sermon. We're going to be reviewing well, the next phase of our Blackaby teaching that we've been reviewing from Granger Community Church. Got to warn you, it's going to be a little bit choppy today because the lessons that we're going to be covering, there's a lot of, well discussion that takes place you'll, you'll see as we go hang on we got to do this right though hold on
good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon isn't really a sermon. It's from the midweek teaching at Granger Community Church as they've been working their way through Blackaby's um, Experiencing God curriculum. Now, what we're going to do today is we're going to be listening to two weeks' worth of um, lectures from the midweek uh, service specifically due to the fact that the first week there isn't a lot of teaching there's a lot of discussion but that discussion you need to hear the questions because it it really kind of reinforces the themes in blackaby and i would say the false doctrinal themes in blackaby you know so it's kind of important that you do it so what we're going to begin at is week five in their uh, lessons and that week was taught by rob wagner Week six is taught by is taught by Mark Beeson. It has a lot more teaching in it, and some of it is okay, and some of it isn't. It's kind of a mixed bag in the week six uh, stuff. But anyway, let's kill the music. Um, what we're gonna do? So we're we're gonna start in week five, and we're gonna have Rob Wagner begin. And you're gonna notice that it's gonna be real choppy. He's gonna give us. He's going to speak for just a little bit, and then we've got to answer questions at, at, at our group table. So I'm going to actually, we won't actually have you discuss, but I think you need to hear the questions because they're reinforcing the themes from the uh, Blackaby curriculum, which is actually taught more explicitly in the workbook that they're working their way through rather than uh, in, the, um, in the book itself, Experiencing God. So without any further ado, here's Rob Wagner. Welcome to the gathering of the people called Granger Community Church. We're gathered here together to go on this journey, deepening our experience of God. We're gathered here as the family because of what our big brother Jesus did to save us and redeem us and and bring us into God's family. We're here as his beloved sons and daughters. And I have some great news for you. There has been an addition to our family. You know, D.C. was here hosting last week. Well, D.C. and Brooke... Had their little baby, Janelle. Is that exciting or what? We actually have some pictures here of uh, both dad and mom. There's DC. Holding her like a football. No one's going to get that baby out of his arms. And then we have a picture of mom. Isn't she beautiful? And they're both doing wonderfully and healthy. Janelle is, let me get the stats right. She was born 5.15 p.m. on October the 7th. Eight pounds, three ounces, and I know you've been praying for them and just wanted to bring a good report to you. And I'll tell you what, Brooke and DC, they are amazing parents, and their girls will never lack for love. That's the truth. And I want to say this to you. Every single one of us in this room, none of us lack for love. If you took all the best love and affection and kindness of all the greatest moms and dads in all of history and put all of that paternal love inside of one person, that person would still only be a shadow of what your father in heaven is to you. And right now, you have all of his love. You are his beloved son and daughter. There's nothing you can do to make him love you more. There's nothing you can do to make him love you less, unless, of course, you didn't do your homework. And then God's really mad at you. And he'll probably give you a flat tire on the way home tonight, or maybe a pimple, I don't know. How twisted is that? And yet, let's be, let's be honest. All of us in this room, every single one of us, at one level or another, 
We're dealing with that twisted image of God where we think his acceptance of us and his approval of us and his affection for us is contingent upon our performance. And we've been trying to deconstruct that. This last week, we're talking about how God pursues us out of a love relationship. What a beautiful thing. And if you're a parent in this room, maybe your experience is like mine. I've learned more about the father heart of God and his affection through my children than anything else in my entire life. And this last week, Belle and I were, uh, it was bedtime, we were praying together. We're working our way through, uh, it's called the Big Picture Story Bible, and we're up to Joseph. And we got done, and we were praying together, and Belle said her prayers, and then I I was saying prayers with her, and I got to the end, and I ended the prayer with, "Uh, Lord, please use us like you used Joseph. In Jesus' name, amen. We get done, and Belle looks at me, she has this look of concern on her face. And I was like, is something the matter, sweetie? And she was kind of hesitant. She said, Daddy, Jesus doesn't use people. He loves people. (laughs) Schooled by a seven-year-old right here. And you know, she's heard her mom say, and my mom used to say this to me, and maybe your mom or dad said it to you, we use things and we love people. We use things and we love people, but we live in a world where we use people and love things, don't we? And Bell helped me to remember, God doesn't use us. We are not cogs in his mission machine. We're not just uh, pawns on his cosmic chessboard. We're, we're not just automatons. We're not just specks on the timeline of history that God's trying to get in order. We are his beloved sons and daughters, and that's good news. And you have all of his love just as you are, even if you didn't do your homework. Aren't you glad? So you can just take a big, deep breath. Yeah, we can celebrate that. That's worth getting excited about. I would uh, be a little bit more comfortable if he talked about the fact that we who are in Christ, who've been brought to faith and trust in Christ and repentance and the forgiveness of sins, baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are in Christ and we are as adopted sons and daughters. I would prefer he talk about it in those terms so that we never create the impression for somebody who isn't in Christ that they are in Christ. Because the benefits he's talking about here, the the, the unbeliever is still under the wrath of God. You understand what I'm saying? We continue. That's the good news. Not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus has already done for us. And we've been learning that God comes and he invites us to join him in his mission because he loves us. And he's not just using us as a means to an end. As we partner with him, we experience his love and his transformation and his character. And we are richer because of it. And and so you know how this kind of works. Uh, We're going to start with a chance to debrief and have conversation around what we've learned this week and what we've experienced of God. And then at the end, we'll have a few minutes to sort of set the trajectory for next week. Uh, So I want to ask you, we're about at the halfway point, believe it or not. It's pretty amazing. I want you to consider where you're at in your journey. And here's the first question for your table group. It's an all skate, so you don't have to break down. Stay as an entire table group and answer this question. Uh, We're not quite to the halfway mark in this journey, so how are you doing? Maybe frustrated? If so, explain why, because... Disappointed because, excited because, fill in the blank because. Let's just talk honestly and let's really express the unconditional acceptance and love of God to one another tonight. So if someone says I'm frustrated, don't be like, 
well, do you love God? You know. Don't do that. If they do, just slap them. It's okay. I give you permission. No, don't do that either. That'd be wrong. But let's talk in our table groups now for about eight minutes. Uh, Describe your journey, where you're at, and let's break that down. Okay. Now, while they're doing their table groups, I'm going to take this opportunity to read a little bit from the Blackaby workbook so that you can uh, orient yourself as to what it is these folks are being taught in their Experiencing God curriculum. And so from Unit 2, Day 3, it says, God takes the initiative. So this is from the Blackaby Experiencing God workbook, found on page 38. And um, here's what it says. Throughout Scripture, God takes the initiative. When he comes to a person, he reveals himself and his activity. That revelation is always an invitation for individuals to adjust their lives to God. None of the people God encountered could remain the same afterward. They had to make major adjustments in their lives to walk obediently with him. Weird. God is is the sovereign Lord. Strive to keep your life God-centered because he is the one who sets the agenda. He is always the one who takes the initiative to accomplish what he wants to do. When you are God-centered, even the desires to do the things that please him come from God's activity in your life. What often often happens when we see God at work? We immediately become self-centered rather than God-centered. We must reorient our lives to God. We should learn to see things from his perspective. We need to allow him to develop his character in us. We must let him reveal his thoughts to us. Only then can we gain a proper perspective of life. God's revelation of his activity is an invitation for you to join him. So one of the common themes here in this Experiencing God curriculum is to find what God is doing in the world and then join him. So you're, you're supposedly out there trying to figure out, okay, God, what are you up to? Can you reveal your activity so I can join you in it? Again, this is bizarre teaching. No one has taught this, um, in fact, this is not synonymous even with the historic church's understanding of the Missio Dei. This is something different. Anyway, uh, let's see. So God's revelation of his activity is an invitation for you to join him. If you keep your life God-centered, law, you will immediately join his activity, law, okay? So when you see God at work around you, your heart will leap within you and say, Thank you, Father, for letting me be involved where you are. Uh, when you are in the middle of God's activity, he lets you see where he is working. So if you want to see, see you've got to be obedient. If you want to see where God is working so that you can be in the middle of the activity, well, you got, okay. So he is working, you know, God wants you to join him. Man. So anyway, so, I mean, that's kind of, um, you know, a, a fill in there so you can kind of get, you know, a flavor for what it is these people were experiencing, you know, no pun intended, uh, as they were going through the workbook. So now that this first question is done and they're done with their, um, their table groups in this free skate is you call it, here's Rob Wagner to kind of set up for the next question. All right, friends, let's come back together. You know, the halfway point in any journey is a pivotal point. The halfway point is where it can get very difficult and tough. The newness is worn off, and now the hard work is starting to kick in. 
you know, if you're halfway through a home makeover project, that's when it just starts to feel, ah. How many of you have a project that's halfway done at home? Come on, fess up. I see some spouses pointing at their spouses. That's not good. You know, halfway through a marathon, that's where the cramps kick in. That's where the fatigue kicks in. Halfway through the a project or a new business startup, it can just get exhausting and be demoralizing. And I just want to encourage you, uh, don't quit. Don't tap out. Uh, especially pay attention to the people that you've been on this journey with because experiencing God is a team sport. Can I hear an amen? God makes us better together. So you may notice There might be some folks that are missing, and I want to ask you to just take personal ownership to reach out to them, to to encourage them to come back. I'm giving you all special powers, all right, to proclaim a dispensation. Go ahead and tell them, it's okay if you're behind. You don't have to make it all up. It's not about filling in the blanks. Just start where you are. Remember when you were a kid and you were playing hide-and-go-seek, and someone could call, alley, alley, oxen, what? free, alley, alley, oxen free, and then you didn't have to hide anymore, it was safe to come home. Alley, alley, oxen free, in the Latin means liberate the oxen. No, it doesn't, I made that up. I have no idea. (laughs) I have no idea what it actually means. But what it means this week, alley, alley, oxen free, it's safe for everyone to come home. So please, take ownership, go to your friends who might have been missing a week or two, call them, send them an email, just write alley, alley, oxen free, and they'll be like, what? And then explain, come on back, and don't worry about trying to make it all up. Just start where you're at. So let's do that this week, okay? Now, this week, Blackaby talked a lot about the names of God. And I want to read a, a quote to you. This is on page uh, 70. And uh, if you want to turn there, you can. Right in the middle of the page. I uh, underlined it and highlighted it. And it starts... About the fourth paragraph down. Frequently, when God revealed himself to individuals, he disclosed a new what? Name to them. Or described himself in a new way. To a Hebrew, a person's name represented his character and described his nature. This is why in the Bible we frequently see new names or titles for God following an event in which someone experienced God. To know God by name required a personal experience of his presence. And on the next page, if you'll flip there, you'll see a list of God's names. Just just a smattering of them. Let me read a few. My Advocate. Comforter in sorrow, wonderful counselor, my strong deliverer, our father, our sure foundation, God almighty, God who avenges me, our guide, our help, our great high priest, my hope, righteous judge, our leader, the light of life, and the list goes on and on and on. And you were asked to move your way through this list of names and titles this week. And I had a sort of a divergent experience as I did that. I went through each name. And as I did, for certain names, a story would pop out. A memory would flood my mind. A time where Michelle and I had experienced God that way to the depths of our being, where his faithfulness and his goodness had become real. And it wasn't just knowing about that name of God. We actually knew God that way, intimately, powerfully, personally. And so I was working through this list of names and I began to just write down one or two word summaries of those memories behind the ones that triggered a memory. And I got to the end of the list and there was uh, probably eight or 10 of them. And it was this wonderful panorama. And it, it just reawakened in me this gratitude for God. And then simultaneously, 
not only did I feel gratitude, I felt this holy discontent because I looked at all the other boxes I hadn't checked and there were more I hadn't checked than I had checked. And there was this holy discontent inside of me. I was, I was like, God, I want to know you more. I don't want to just settle for what I've had. I want to feast on you and all these other things. I want to experience you. I don't want to just know about that. I want to know it. And you know, you look at this list at the back of the book on pages uh, 268 and 269. And I think this would be a great vision for our lives. Wouldn't it be amazing when you swing out of this life into the next and you see Jesus face to face, if you could tell a story for every single one of these names, how awesome would that be? That's, that's worth giving a life to, and that's what experiencing God is about. So let's just start where we're at, and I want you to look at the list of names on, on page 72, and basically talk about two questions at your table group. With which name or names do you most resonate? So highlight one or two or however many that really... Notice the subjectivity here. Apparently, you know, so which of these names have you experienced personally? In your life. Now, when he goes to the, the group discussion here, I'm going to back up and I'm going to unpack a Supreme Bible twisting that is a key part of this series that, uh, that they haven't talked about. But, you know, having worked my way through the workbook, I will expose it to you so that you can see where the fault is. But uh, he, let's continue for a second. Stood out for you and explain why. You might have a brief story to share. And then the second question is, which of these names do you need the most right now? So maybe you haven't experienced God in that area yet, but you desperately want to. Let's notice the compartmentalizing. Uh, you haven't experienced God in this area of your life. Notice your experience is the thing that becomes the key for understanding the revelation of who God is. About that in our table groups, and we'll have about eight minutes, so let's jump into it. Okay, now while they're doing that, I'm going to back up a little bit. Okay, page 42 of the Experiencing God workbook um, is it's day four of unit two entitled God Speaks to His People. And it this is a supreme twisting of God's word that if you buy into this, you buy into the whole false theology that's uh, that's in this book. This is one of those key pivotal points. But let me read to you. Uh, Blackaby writes, years ago, I spoke to a group of young pastors. When I finished the first session, a pastor took me aside and said, I vowed to God I would never again listen to a man like you. You talk as though God is personal and talks to you. I just despise that. I asked him, are you having difficulty letting God speak to you? He and I talked, and before long, we were on our knees. He wept and thanked God that he had spoken to him. Don't let anyone intimidate you about hearing from God. Okay, so the the point now is, number one, read the following scriptures and answer the questions that follow. So what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to read these verses to you out of context the way they are presented in the workbook. But when we put them back into context, you'll see where the prob- what the problem is immediately. So Hebrews 1.1, 1, 1, out of context, In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. John 14.26, The Counselor, the Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. 
John 16:13 through 14 when he the spirit of truth comes he will guide you in all truth he will not speak on his own he will speak only what he hears and he will tell you what is yet to come he will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you John 8:47 he who belongs to God hears what God says the reason why you do not hear is that you do not belong to God now i'm going to point this out all of those verses are out of context so what he's done is he's he's creating a pretense that God wants to speak to you directly and the proof texts are Hebrews 1:1, 1, 1, John 14:26, John 16:13 through 14, John 8:47. So here's a series of questions then based upon these out of context verses that have been strung together to create the impression that God wants to speak to you Patricia King style. Uh so question A, in the Old Testament times past, how and through whom did God speak? Answer, prophets. In the New Testament times, these last days, how did God speak? Through his Son. In John fourteen twenty six, whom did Jesus promise the Father would send in his name? Answer, the Holy Spirit. What is the work of the Holy Spirit as described in, four, in John fourteen twenty six and sixteen thirteen through 14? Now, this is the key point. This these verses are ripped out of context in order to create the impression that God, the Holy Spirit, intends to speak to you directly. But I'll, I'll address this here in a second. So the the obvious is well, if you answer well, oh, wow, wow, God, the Holy Spirit wants to speak to me. That's not what the verse is saying, but I'll show it to you in a second. So who is the one who God hear who hears what God says? Well, uh, John eight forty seven, uh, the one who belongs to God. So what John? What does John 8:47 say about a person who does not hear what God says? <gasps> They're not of God. That's what the teaching is. So, he makes the point then if you are having if you have trouble hearing God speak, you are in trouble at the heart of your Christian experience because God apparently in John 8:47 wants to speak to you directly and if you're not hearing his voice directly, well then you don't belong to God. You see the problem here? So let's go back and let's put these verses in context while the table groups discuss, and let's do this in order. Hebrews 1, okay, he quotes verse 1. I'll put a little bit of context around it because our three primary rules for sound biblical interpretation are context, context, and context. So when we put these verses back in context, can they support this idea that God wants to speak to you directly through the Holy Spirit, and if you're not hearing God the Holy Spirit speak, well, then there's something wrong. You probably don't even belong to God. That's the implication of this teaching. Hebrews 1.1, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power after making purifications for sins. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So notice it says, uh, in many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us. He has spoken to us by his son. So uh, the uh, the Greek word there, by the way, is in the aorist active indicative. It's a past tense. It's okay. So this is saying he's spoken to us. Past tense. It's not saying he's still speaking. This verse actually says that God has spoken. He's now spoken to us through his son. So you can say types and shadows. 
going back to the Old Testament, God spoke to us through the prophets. That would be the Holy Spirit revealing things directly to the prophets. But now he's spoken to us by his son, who is God in human flesh, okay? Notice that the the the, the verb there, spoken, is in the aorist, past tense uh, form, okay? So Hebrews 1.1, when you put it in context, is not saying, nor does it say, that God intends to continue speaking to you as if you're a prophet. Um, a continue speaking to you uh, without the mediation of his word through the Holy Spirit, some kind of a, a direct experience. Hebrews 1.1 does not say that. Hebrews 1.2 does not say that. Now comes the kicker. John 14 um, verse 26 was taken out of context and woven together with John 16, 13 through 14. And here's the question that you got to ask when you look at John chapter 14, verse 26. To whom is Jesus making this promise? Is he making the promise in general to all of the church, or is this a specific prophet promise being made to his disciples for a particular reason? Okay, and so what we're going to do is we're going to back things up a little bit. John chapter 14, I'll start at verse 18. Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in the Father and you in me and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps or guards them, is it is he who loves me and he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep or guard my word, and my Father will love him, and he will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words or guard my words, and the word that you hear is not mine but the Father who sent me. Now these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper... The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So notice here, John chapter 14, verse 26, is a, is a promise given specifically to the apostles, given to the disciples of Jesus, it's a promise of, like, you can think of it almost as total recall, okay? So God, the Holy Spirit, the Helper, will come, the Father will send him, and he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. This isn't a promise here in John fourteen twenty six that God the Holy Spirit is going to continue speaking to Christians. This is a promise that Jesus is and the Father are going to send the Holy Spirit and help them remember all that Jesus said and taught them while he was with them on earth. This is a promise of divine total recall, if you would, of divine memory keeping so that they can remember what Jesus said so that they can correctly preach and teach all that Jesus taught them when he was with them. Okay? So here we got a problem. In this section of Blackaby, Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 is taken out of context. John 14, 26 is taken out of context. 
Well, that would probably, you know, if we're going to be consistent, that would probably mean that John chapter 16, verses 13 through 14 are taken out of context. And let me read it to you in context. I'll just add a little bit. Um, Jesus says, uh, I'll start at uh, verse 10. Um, Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judge. Verse 12, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Again, I would argue that John sixteen thirteen through 14 is not a general promise to the church that God the Holy Spirit is going to continue to speak to you. This is a specific promise to Jesus' disciples. So now we've got a problem. We've got three of the four verses clearly taken out of context. As soon as we put them in context, um, that whatever it is that Blackaby's teaching here is not what God's Word actually teaches when we view it in context using sound biblical hermeneutics. Now, the coup de grace is the uh, John 8, 47 verse. Now, I'm going to point something out here. John 8, 47, this is kind of a weird translation. I'm not sure what translation he's using, but it's as if this is purpose, purposefully obscure. The verse taken out of context says, He who belongs to God hears what God says. The reason why you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. They, the, the translation that the Blackaby folks uh, picked on purpose um, obscures the, uh, what's being taught there when you look at a good translation and cr- creates the false impression that, well, what's, what Jesus is referring to here is that you directly hear God's voice and experience it sans his word. This is not right. But uh, let me put it in context. John eight thirty nine. This is one of my favorite. John chapter eight is just flat out one of my favorite passages of scripture. This is Jesus's confrontation with the Jews, and it, it there are sparks and fireworks to say the least. But uh, Jesus. So anyway, this is part way through the argument. Um, uh, John eight thirty nine. They answered Jesus, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if Abraham, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who's told you the truth that I heard from God. That is what Abraham did. You are doing the works of your father, that your father did. So they said to him, well, we're not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, well, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he who sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from a be- from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Now, is Jesus saying here that the one who, if you, whoever is of God 
hears directly the words of God, you know, in their head or something like that. That's not what Jesus is getting at here. In fact, th- what Jesus is really more or less talking to here is is the they hear God's word in the written scripture. That's what Jesus is referring to there. But the, you know, here Blackaby by taking these verses out of context, Hebrews 1:1, 1, 1, John 14:26, John 16:13-14 and then the kicker John 8:47 taken out of context, it's basically saying, listen, if you're not hearing God's voice directly, through some spiritual mystical experience, well, you're in trouble and you're not obedient and you need to learn how to hear God's voice, not in his word, but directly. So th- this is kind of the point that, um, this is uh, where it continues there on page 43. So sin has affected us that so that you and I cannot understand God's truth unless the Holy Spirit reveals us. He is the teacher. When he teaches you the word of God, carefully listen to him and respond to him. As you pray, watch to see how he uses scripture to conform, confirm in your heart a word from God. This sounds like a, a version of the Lectio Divina. Watch what he is doing around you and in your circumstances. The God who is speaking to you as you pray and the God who is speaking to you in the scriptures is the God who is also working around you. So look on the inside back cover of the fourth reality, then answer the following question. When Jesus returned to heaven, which person of the Trinity was sent to speak to God's people? It's the Holy Spirit. So what are the four ways that apparently he speaks? So yeah, anyway, you get what's going on there. So here's this idea. You have got to, you've got to be obedient. If you're not directly hearing God's voice, then, uh, well, there's something seriously wrong. And uh, and the reason why God wants you to do this is because he's pursuing a love relationship with you, which, again, is a weird way of talking, and that's which is actually consistent with the way mystics talk. When you, you know, Teresa of Avila and other mystics, they oftentimes talk about the love relationship with God in a way that sounds almost erotic. And, well, Teresa of Avila, for sure, it's erotic. So, yeah, so and Blackaby is a Baptist mystic, and it it then would make sense why he talks about God's pursuing a love relationship with you. That talk again borders on the erotic, and it's it's problematic at, <laughs> at the minimum. Anyway, let's continue now that uh, you know they've uh, finished working through this uh, group table discussion, and uh, and let's see where Rob Wagner goes next with this. One of the topics we were asked to consider this week is the nature of God's will. Uh, We've actually been trying to discern together how do we perceive where God is at work and join him, which some would call God. How do we perceive where God is at work and join him? Again, strange language. By the way, it's clear I'm not going to be able to get to lecture the next lecture today. We're going to have to just focus on Rob Wagner's presentation because I'm trying to fill stuff in so that you kind of get the overall picture of what where this thing goes off the rails. Blackaby early on makes it clear if you're not directly hearing God's voice, well then you're you're just disobedient. You're you're something wrong with your Christian experience because God wants this for you in a, as he pursues you in a love relationship. And now here's the question, how we perceive where God is working so he we can join him. This is like a chasing after the wind. And God's will has been a point of fervent and heated and controversial conversation in the body of Christ for 2,000 years. 
And there's this tension between God's choice and our choice, God's sovereignty and, and free will. So we figured if we gave you a few minutes in your table groups, you could probably figure it out and get that all settled. So we'll do that. Here's the question. Considering God's nature is love, so we want this to be a loving conversation. Yeah, but God's nature is also just. Look together at the following descriptions of God's will. God's will is a formula to be figured out. This is actually the next question. This is a manipulative, these are manipulative type questions, by the way, where they're trying to lead you into a specific answer, not through exegesis, but by question manipulation. God's will is a friendship to be developed. God's will is a closed system. God's will is an open dynamic. God's will is a rigid agenda. God's will is a growing relationship. God's will is one pathway. God's and notice, considering God's nature is love, look together at the following descriptions of God's will. We're not basing it on a passage. We're basing it on an abstraction, an incomplete abstraction about God's nature. Will is a process. So we're going to leave those up on the screen. You can feel some of the tension in there. And then consider these questions. Which of these following statements stands out for you? And then explain why. Which of these do you agree with the most? Which of these do you disagree with the most? And what has been your experience as you've tried to perceive God's will? So let's dive into that. <laughs> what has been your experience as you've tried to perceive God's will? I'm, I'm out there trying to perceive it. If you want to know what God's will is, open up the Bible and read it. What is this idea about somehow subjectively going out and perceiving God's will? Again, this is like chasing after, you know, the wind. It doesn't make any sense. And be nice to each other. We're going into deep waters. Here we go. All right. So I'm going to just fast forward through. That's a 12-minute long discussion. What's been your experience as you've tried to perceive God's will perceive subjectively, not learn it from what he's written, has in revealed in his written word. Here's the next section. Okay, let's come back together. Hey, I, I want to say something to encourage you. Over the years, I've been in a lot of these table group discussions at GCC, I've been in a lot of small groups. And we have teams that work really hard behind the scenes to try to put together great experiences and great conversation guides. But I've been there when someone, you know, dropped out a question from the guide and it went over like a Led Zeppelin. It just, bam, it just crashed. And then it's that awkward silence and pause. And some of you may have just had that experience and you're watching the clock count down and thinking, is it ever going to end? It's okay. It doesn't mean your table group is a bad table group. It just, it doesn't mean you're dumb. It just means that question didn't work for your group and there's lots of dynamics that go into that. So just, ah, it's okay. So I just want to say this. I saw a few groups that were struggling. If you hit a question like that and every table group in this room is going to hit a question like that sometime in this 12 weeks, the default question you can fall back to is this. So what in your journal over the last week really stood out for you? What, what really captured your attention? So if you get one of those questions, it's like, boom, awkward silence, crickets. It's okay. Someone just step up and say, hey, that question didn't work for us. Let's talk about what stood out for you this week. Is that good? We all okay? All right, great. Let's go back to another question. Here we go. Some of you really liked that question. I saw hands waving and people talking. I mean, it was the full spectrum. That was awesome. So 
Here's the next question. Pages 76 and 77. We want you to discuss the relationship between loving God and obeying God. Which is a weird question because the commandment, all of the commandments are summed up in the one, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. So obedience and love are inseparable, and the fact that you don't obey God perfectly demonstrates that you are in need of forgiveness and that you don't love God with all your heart. And here's a really profound question. How do we avoid legalism? Okay, and this will be up on the screen. How do we avoid le- Notice the cross is like nowhere present in this curriculum. Legalism, obeying out of rigid obligation, spirituality is measured by the rules one keeps, you know, been there, done that, when it comes to obeying God. So how do we avoid that legalism? And the second question is, what prevents us from seeing God's commands as a doorway to freedom? Because it was very, very clear that God's intent from the scripture is that all of his commands, they're for our liberty, for our freedom, for our provision. And yet, so many times we look at those and it feels restrictive and closed and we don't want to run toward them. We, we want to actually push against them. What is it, both outside of us and inside of us, that makes us respond that way? So let's dig into those two questions. And it th- Notice again the subjective nature here. Questions don't work for your table. Just talk about what you liked in the book this week, and that'll be good. All right, let's go for it. Okay, now while they're doing that, I'm going to go back a little bit in the curriculum, and I'm going to point out another major Bible twisting. On page 45, the, the, the heading is God Speaks with a Purpose. We usually want God to speak to us so he can give us a devotional thought to make us feel good for the rest of the day. If you want the God of the universe to speak to you, you need to be ready for him to reveal what he is doing where you are. In scripture, God is not often seen coming and speaking to people just for conversation's sake. He is always working to accomplish his purposes. When God speaks to you through the Bible, prayer, circumstances, in the church, or another way, let me read that again, when God speaks to you through the Bible, prayer, circumstances, the church, or another way, He has a purpose in mind for your life. When God spoke to Abram, see Genesis chapter 12, what was God about to do? He was about to begin building a nation. Notice God's timing. Why did God speak to Abram when he did? Because it was then that God wanted to start building the nation. The moment Abram knew what God was about to do, he had to adjust his life to God. He had to immediately follow what God said. So the moment that God speaks to you is the time he wants you to respond to him. Don't you think you have the next three or four months to decide whether this is really God's timing? The moment God speaks to you is is God's timing. That is why he chooses to speak to you when he does. He speaks to his servant when he is ready to move. Otherwise, he wouldn't speak to you. As God enters the mainstream of your life, the timing of your response is crucial. When God speaks to you, you need to be you need to believe and obey him. Do not assume, however, that the moment that God calls you, you are prepared for the assignment. So notice what's going on here. He's deconstructed Genesis chapter twelve, where God spoke to Abram as somehow being normative, and that God's gonna do the same thing to you. He God's gonna come to you the same way he came to Abram. And God has something he's up to and, you know, in and around you. And he's, he's going to reveal it to you through many ways. Uh, it could be the Bible, prayer, circumstances, the church, or another way. 
and uh, he's going to come and talk to you about the thing he's up to, and you need to be ready to respond and obey immediately. Find what God's doing in the world, and then join him. But this isn't based on sound biblical hermeneutics or correct exegetical uh, reading of the text. This is based upon allegorizing the biblical texts and then, you know, somehow applying them to you in a way they were never meant to be applied. And he twists the Bible on top of it. That's the even worse part about it. So here's Rob Wagner now uh, that they've uh, finished this last discussion, and he's getting it tee up for the next segment here in this week's series on Blackaby. Here we go. Well, the last day of this unit this week, we look together at how, in fact, do we figure out where God is at work? In other words, okay, God is at work, but in order for me to join him, that means I have to actually notice that he's at work. So yeah, so... How I mean, are there some kind of glasses I can buy so that, you know, just put them on and I can see where God's working so I can join him? I do that. And you may remember back in the old days before you had auto-tune radios or cable TV, you used to actually have to turn a dial, remember that, to kind of tune in a station? Or I had the rabbit ears, you know, on our TV and you'd have to do this number and if you bent up like this, you could get the right, you know, reception and get that extra channel. So how do we tune the dial in? To be able to actually notice where God is at work. This sounds like a lot of work. And Henry Blackaby, he listed a number of things. And maybe you've noticed some things in your life. So this question has two parts of it. The first part is this. It'll be on the screen. Together as a table group, quickly list some ideas that can help us recognize what God is up to. You know, what are some ways that we can tune in and hear the music coming in through the radio? So together, quickly list some ideas that can help us recognize what God is up to. And then uh, a more personal question. Look for the guy walking around with a big flowing white beard. Where did you see God at work this past week? Oh, man. How did you respond? How do you wish you could had responded? And of the ideas listed, this is the first part again of the question. What may be most helpful as you watch for God at God's activity in your life and the lives of others this next week. So start out, take a minute or two, quickly brief, uh, debrief rather around some ideas that are helpful. And so we're not going to read a biblical passage. We're going to try to figure this out subjectively as a group. Of you recognizing what God is up to and then begin to talk about your experiences with God this week. Let's jump into that together. Okay, I'm going to fast forward here. And by the way, they went, they spent 14 minutes discussing that 14 minutes so, uh, so, uh, list some of the ways that can help us recognize what God's doing. And then where did you see God working this week? You know, I saw him at a construction site, you know, it was weird, kind of weird, you know, he was wearing a hard hat. I, I don't know. This is ridiculous. Here is Rob Wagner again. Well, a couple of closing thoughts before we wrap up and disperse. We're going to spend actually the next two weeks on the same concept. God speaks. And the Christian faith makes this audacious claim that God is still speaking to his people. If we understand Jesus' teaching about the Holy Spirit correctly, then we realize God did Yeah, but I just demonstrated that you do not understand Jesus' teaching regarding the Holy Spirit correctly. Blackaby 
took those verses out of context to make a, a, a promise that was given specifically to the apostles to give them total recall of what Jesus taught to somehow turned it into God is still speaking and God the Holy Spirit wants to speak to us the way he spoke to the apostles. You do not understand Jesus' teaching regarding the Holy Spirit correctly at all. It's based upon a misreading and a twisting of God's word. Up laryngitis in the first century. He is still speaking to his people today, and he does that via the Holy Spirit. And the person of the Holy Spirit, I think, is easily the most misunderstood person of the Trinity. And it's clear you misunderstand him. First of all, let me just proclaim, the Spirit is not an it. The Spirit is a he. The Spirit is not an it. The Spirit is not a non-personality, nebulous force or feeling that God sort of mixes into the atmosphere when we have a really awesome worship set. Like, whoa, do you feel those goosebumps? Did you feel that feeling? That's God's spirit. Now listen, God's spirit can give us a palpable sense of God's presence, but he is not a feeling. He is not a force. He is a person that you can know and relate to and experience closeness. He is the residing presence and the operating power of God inside of you. And every single one of us in this room, we have equal access to the Holy Spirit. If you're a follower of Jesus and you have received amazing grace, you have the same access to the Spirit of God that Mark Beeson or Billy Graham or Mother Teresa or even the Apostle Paul had. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead, it's inside of you. And I got to tell you, if you're like me, yeah, yeah, we can celebrate that. And if you're like me, I go, I go so many minutes and hours and, and sometimes even days where I've spent my energy just doing merely human effort, producing merely human result. And I got to tell you, the most miserable person on the planet is the person who's trying to live a holy life without the Holy Spirit. And I've been there and I've done that. Anyone else? And it is dry, and it is dusty, and it is demoralizing. And we need the Holy Spirit like we need our next breath. And, and you need to know that he is fully available to you. In the beginning of the book of Acts, the Spirit of God comes like a mighty wind. And, and these, these tongues of fire settle on top of every single believer, not just on the apostles, not just on the bigwigs, this isn't some kind of special access thing for pastors and missionaries. This is for all of us. But the book of Acts also says that there were numerous times where they were filled again with the Spirit. So we all have equal access to the Spirit, but we need to be filled. In fact, Paul says this in Ephesians. He says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Don't be drunk with wine... And he's saying, I don't care if it's Miller or Miller Lite or whatever, don't get drunk on wine. And there's no nitpicking, you know. Maybe you're like, well, I don't get drunk on wine. I get drunk on tequila, <laughs> you know. <laughs> That's not the point. He says, don't live D-U-I, live L-U-I. Live under the influence of the Spirit of God. And just like if you get drunk, it changes the way you think and the way you talk and the way you act and the way you feel. He says, if you are continually filled with the Spirit, 
Because in the original language, it's actually called present imperative. In other words, it's this command, it's an imperative, but it's present. It's continually happening. That we need this constant infilling of the Holy Spirit. And I want to ask you to pray this simple prayer this week. Just say, Spirit of God, reveal yourself to me. Fill me and speak to me. Those three things. Spirit of God, reveal yourself to me. And it assumes that he's not speaking to you when you're reading your Bible. Fill me and speak to me. And remember that prayer is a two-way conversation. And I have so much more I want to say, but I'm out of time. But just remember this. Prayer is a two-way conversation. And I spent a lot of years as a follower of Jesus, and I grew up in the church, and I did a lot of one-way prayer. It wasn't two-way. My prayers were like this. You know, our Father art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, and all that stuff. Notice that's the way Jesus taught us to pray. Get to the daily bread. I need some help with this and this and this. I need some help with that and that. I'm struggling with this and this. In Jesus' name, amen. Click. One-way conversation. Where, when Jesus taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer, does he say now, and afterwards, stop and listen? And this week, let prayer be more of a conversation. In other words, not click, woo, amen, I'm done. But say, Spirit of God, reveal yourself to me, fill me, and speak to me. And, if- and this isn't based on a solid, sound, exegetical reading of Scripture. This is based upon a twisting of God's Word. Some of us in this room, that's uncharted territory completely. And you're, you're getting ready for the greatest adventure of your life. You're going to be grounded in the Word of God. You're going to have a great guide with Henry Blackaby helping you discern what it means. Cause you know- No, Henry Blackaby doesn't know how to discern because he twists God's Word. People hear crazy stuff from God all the time. You know what I'm talking about? And Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. You don't have to convince me of that. We That's what we cover daily here at this program. Just wants to go off the deep end. People do crazy stuff like ram planes into towers because they said God told them to do it. And so we want to stay anchored under the authority of God's word. But God's spirit is still speaking today. And he wants to... So the Bible is just an anchor. But, you know, you could just twirl all around it all you want. Speak to you. So let's bow our heads together. Yeah, no, we're done. <clears throat> yeah, I guess we'll have to get to uh, Mark Beeson's uh, talk next week when we do our Blackaby series next week. So, yeah, I didn't expect to teach as long as I did, but I thought it was good to kind of backfill in what was, you know, what the, these people were reading from the uh, the Blackaby workbook, so that you, you know, at least have a better idea what it is they're reading, what the what they've been taught, and why it's not what God's word says. It's based upon a false reading, based upon twisted text taken out of context and strung together using manipulative questions to guide you to the conclusion that apparently, you know, well, you're not, you don't really have a good relationship with God unless you're hearing his voice in, well, all kinds of different places, now, the Bible being one of them, prayer, circumstances, or any other way. And that's not what God's Word teaches. Blackaby is a mystic teaching you a light Baptist form of mysticism, but it's mysticism nonetheless.
So what'd you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. And follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.